Hello, I'm John Cameron, and welcome to Musicology. No matter what you do, you're competing against your uh, previous product and everybody expecting more. You really try to top yourself all the time. But uh, I believe in doing better work. As you grow, you should get better. In 1983, Michael Jackson was the biggest musical artist in the world. His second solo record as an adult, Thriller, became the best-selling album of all time, an achievement still held today. His music videos, or short films, set a new standard for the medium, with their cinematic-like quality, and the debut of the Moonwalk Dance, a white sequined glove and a now-seasoned adult performer solidified him as a cultural icon. I, uh, like you said, a lot of people have been overexposed. It's true where people are fed up. I pray that it never happens with me. I enjoy the stage more than anything. That's why I want to be free, free like the wind blows, to fly away just like the sparrow. Jackson's success was growing, as was his development as a songwriter and composer. While still fronting his band of brothers, the Jacksons, his solo success had already eclipsed their achievements. Their album, Victory, would be released in 1984, while the aftershocks of Thriller were still breaking ground. In the movie world, I mean, the old MGM days, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney would do movie back to back to back. And while they were doing this, I mean, they were learning, watching, and seeing, and experiencing. For you know it, they're directing their own films, because they're around it all the time, and they want that chance to try it. And uh, that's what's wonderful I love about you eventually want to do it yourself. Throughout the recording sessions for Victory, Michael began drafting a team to work with for his next solo project. These sessions would primarily take place at his Los Angeles home studio known as Havenhurst. The resulting album, titled Bad, was released in August 1987. And how many songs did you write for the Bad album that were not published? I wrote probably 60, 70 songs for the Bad album that weren't published. There was a multitude of musicians and engineers Michael worked with during this period. However, John Barnes, Bill Bottrell, Matt Forger and Chris Carell were the key people in the Havenhurst team. It's estimated they worked on over 60 songs in varying stages of completion. Nine out of the 11 tracks on Bad would originate from those sessions. Ha <laughs> ha 
1978, Quincy Jones was contracted to produce three Michael Jackson albums. During the production of Thriller, they worked on an audiobook for the film E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Allegedly, Jackson thought that this was a fulfilment of that contract, counted along with the Off the Wall and Thriller albums. That assumption was a mistake. The narrative pushed about the making of Bad is that Michael recorded the demos at Havenhurst, with whom Quincy labelled the B-Team. He then brought those recordings to Westlake Studios for Jones's A-Team to perfect. The B-Team label massively downplays the significance of John Barnes and Bill Bottrell's work. The Havenhurst recording served as the basis for what appeared on the album. In many cases, instruments were simply re-recorded at Westlake, almost indistinguishable replacements. That's not to say the contributions of Jones's A-Team should be ignored, but neither should John Barnes or Bill Bottrell. Album credits seldom reflect the reality of who or what goes into a recording, and Michael Jackson's Bad Album is an egregious example. Since the early 1970s, John Barnes worked as a session keyboardist and arranger for numerous record labels. He made iconic contributions to the discographies of Gloria Gaynor, the Pointer Sisters, and a roster of Motown artists. In 1972, he worked on Jermaine Jackson's eponymous first solo album, but he and Michael's paths were yet to cross. Ironically, my first Jackson experience took place at Motown working with Jermaine. I started with Jermaine probably 1976 and did a lot of things with Jermaine over that time prior to meeting the other brothers and Michael and all of them. So for maybe four or five years, easily. Barnes was extensively experienced with synthesizers, most significantly the Fairlight CMI and its market rival, the Synclavia. Both synths would prominently feature in Michael's songs produced during this period. His technical expertise, coupled with his immense creativity, led Jackson to reach out. They immediately fostered a special relationship. Uh, he called me up on the phone and said, um, I've heard something that you worked on, I liked it. Marlon told me that you actually make your own songs. I said, yes, that's true, that's what I do, as well as play them. So he asked me if I would come to a studio and he wanted to see how many sounds I could make. I just said, you know, with all due respect, how much time do you have? So he said, let's start. So we booked a session. We went to a studio called Soundcastle. That's the first time I saw him in person. And we started that day doing the song Buffalo Bill. I listened to what he wanted to accomplish. He was explaining to me his theatrical uh, thoughts around it. I was like, okay. We got a major amount of it done in the first session, maybe like six hours. That was my first impression of me, Michael. We got to work and we were able to be complimentary in our results. Like what he was expressing, I was able to hear that and translate that into sound quickly. The song Buffalo Bill would never see a release, although it would be mentioned in several articles prior to the release of Victory which Barnes had also contributed to. 
John and Michael would work extensively during the mid-1980s. Together, they were drawing the blueprint for Jackson's next album and recorded songs that would ultimately be given to other artists. John Barnes is one of the most important but uncredited collaborators in Jackson's discography. It kind of comes like a thought, just an embryo of a thought or an idea. It could be just a brief concept, and then you collaborate with someone. It could be a writer, and you'll say, you know, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to do this. And you tell them to develop it, because I, I can't do it right now. i got to go on to doing the, the, the next song or the next thing. So they'll come up with something and working with what, what your idea is, and they'll get back to you, and you tell them whether you like it or not. I mean, I, I've done that with pretty much everything I've done. I, I'm, I'm usually there for the concept, for the writing. I co-write usually all my pieces that I do. Alone she lies waiting, surrounded by gloom, invaded by shadows, painting the room. The light from the window cuts through the air. Pins the child lying there Scared of the moon Michael first met Matt Forger during the Thriller sessions at Westlake Studios, where he worked as an assistant engineer to Bruce Wadean. They cultivated a friendship and would work together for the next two decades. Forger contributed to all of Jackson's future studio albums and in the curation of compilation and reissue projects. Between Michael and myself, it was like brainwaves would synchronize. He'd want something, he'd start describing it to me. And say, oh, you mean like this? And he goes, yeah, that's it, that's it, exactly. And then, then he'd get so excited when he would hear it, he would start dancing. When the sound was right, it connected to some inner part of him. As John and Michael continued to create new songs, Matt was called upon to assist as an engineer. The team were initially based at Westlake Studios, while Jackson's Havenhurst home studio was being built. I met John one day when Michael wanted to record a song that that he had written in the studio. I showed up, and uh, John Barnes was there. There was a series of these projects which kind of all flowed one into the other after uh, myself and John Barnes and, and Michael Jackson all ended up working at Westlake Studios. And uh, what we were doing was we were working in the, the same room that was the room that Thriller had been uh, recorded in. John Barnes was a part of, of all of these series of, of, of things. I mean, he was, he was the guy. He, uh, he had the hand-on technology. He also was an excellent uh, musician in terms of the keyboard, uh, because if you play a keyboard, then with synthesis, you can basically play any instrument. He also was very good at programming. At that time, we were using uh, drum machines. So he was a hands-on with with basically the three of us were the team, and, and we could do a complete record with just the three of us in the room. And that's what we did. Jackson, Barnes and Forger would regroup upon the completion of the Havenhurst studio and continue working on a plethora of songs. These were scattered across a multitude of projects, 
eventually leading to Matt having to focus his efforts at other studios. Once you have the song in your head, what do you do to, uh, next to get the song? I go to a tape recorder and I put the sounds down orally with my mouth of how I want the bass or the strings or the drums or each part to go the way I hear it. Because the key is to get exactly what you're hearing in your head on that tape. With Jackson developing as an artist, he yearned to exercise more independence over his output. He was briefly motivated to develop as a musician, having displayed only rudimentary skills as an instrumentalist. This led to an incidental partnership with Chris Carell and a further insight into utilizing the synclavia. Michael's secretary called and said, Michael wants to have you come out to the house. But Michael wants you to teach him the synclavia. I said, oh, teach him the synclavia? <laughs> that was new. So I put together a program for him so you could get up and running and run the machine himself. So I end up going out there to his house on early Sunday morning. He comes in the studio and introduced himself. And, and uh, he said uh, that he wanted me to teach him. The thing was is that he had programmers before this, and they weren't very, they weren't really musical, so he couldn't really communicate with them. So he decided, he, you know, maybe if he could do it himself, <laughs> you know, it'd be more direct to the music. And so I said, you take this floppy disk, and he said, immediately, time out. I don't know what a floppy disk is. <laughs> So I said, oh, okay. So actually, so I had to go even more basic. But after about three hours, I told him, you know, showed him how to boot up the Synclavier and call up sounds to the terminal so he could get a whole list of various sounds in the library and be able to call them to the keyboard so he could mess around and do whatever he wanted to do. And he just said that uh, that's all he could take for today. You come back tomorrow for a session. I said, yeah, sure. And I was with him every day after that for four years. Despite Jackson's limited interest in learning how to operate the Synclavia, Chris Carell would be present throughout most of the production of Bad. He would also later join Michael on the Bad World Tour, playing the Synclavia and other synthesizers. The, the teaching just went out the window. We just hit it off so well, you know, threw that idea out the window because we could communicate really, really well. I like being active. I like to create. I constantly coming up with different songs and different ideas and looking and prying into the future, uh, the sound of tomorrow. And because uh, the music is constantly changing, minute by minute. And uh, it's important not to become old hat. A great melody will never become old. Most important things, you know, great melodies. And some of the old Motown or the old Beatles songs are just phenomenal. And they'll never become old head. But the, the sounds and the music change, and that will become old. The sound, like the instruments. Like in the 60s, there was a lot of electric guitar and acoustic guitars. And now it's this whole computerized, synthesized sound, which is completely taken over. 
Musician and engineer Bill Bottrell had also worked on Jermaine Jackson's solo album, where he'd first met John Barnes. In 1983, Bottrell was employed by the Jackson Brothers as an engineer for the Victory album. One day, Michael sought his services for a track he had just recorded with Queen frontman Freddie Mercury. He came in and brought the demo for State of Shock. He brought a two-inch tape in himself, and he was... Put this on and see what you think. You look so great. Every time I see your face, you put me in a state. State of shock. He had done it at his house with Freddie Mercury. And uh, it was rocking. Man, I just did all the whatever the English rock side of me could find. And uh, it, it was real authentic. They threw it together in the most careless way in, in the early studio they had at Havenhurst, which was not what, what it became later. And we're just having so much fun, and it was so good. It was so easy for me to spend 45 minutes and make that thing rock, and Michael was astonished. And he took a cassette home, put five stars on it, and said, Billy, remember exactly what you did on this. State of Shock would see a release on Victory re-recorded and remixed, with Freddie Mercury replaced by Mick Jagger. Michael would later invite Bill to work with him at Havenhurst, along with John Barnes, as a replacement for Matt Forger. It's my contribution to life. To do what I'm doing and I put my heart in it. And whatever good I can do, I do it. And I, uh, I love people and I love making them happy. There's nothing like seeing your record, number one, not for the ego, because I, I hate ego. It's for the fact that I know people bought it and they loved it and they enjoy it. And that's good. And I think all those people who, um, I mean, I can turn out great music, but it takes the people behind it to really make it happen and I appreciate it. In late 1983, Michael Jackson was filmed at his Havenhurst home, showing off his pets and giving a tour of the property. He also talked about the material he was working on for the Victory album. This gives an insight into the extent to which he would hold on to a song or idea until developing it to satisfactory completion. You see, we're doing a new album right now. It's the Jackson's album. And I'm writing several songs on it. The latest one I'm writing is called Buffalo Bill. It's about Will Cody, the cowboy, and how he died. I'm I'm really excited about it. I hate to say I know it's going to be a hit, but <laughs> I really strong, I feel strong about it. Then I'm writing a song, Liberian Girl, about a Liberian girl. Sorry about that. I'm excited about all my projects. <laughs> Despite assessing it as a potential hit, Buffalo Bill wouldn't see a release, but Liberian Girl would, four years later, making it the earliest documented song to feature on Bad. Liberian Girl is a love song, with its poetry embedded in a percussive soundscape, What inspired the racial specification of the subject being from the West African country of Liberia is unconfirmed. I wrote that in um, at my house in the game room. 
I guess I was playing some pinball or something. And the song just popped in my head. I think I ran upstairs, put it on tape. It became Liberian Girl. new sounds and new ideas, new ways of doing things, technology. I came in to do that. And after we worked with Bill on some of the early ideas that I helped develop with Michael, like Buffalo Bill, and even at that time, Liberian Girl was one of those things. It was originally going to be on the Victory album, and then uh, Michael held it for bad. It was identical to what we did what hit the record. It was almost like stream of conscious for everyone. And it happened so fast that we all knew that something extraordinary had happened. On the musical side, Liberian Girl is one of them. The Havenhurst version would receive overdubs from Quincy's Westlake team. This included additional synths from Michael Bodica, adding to the already ethereal soundscape. All, all of his stuff was so different. I mean, Liberian Girl, I mean, who would think of a thing like that? It's, it's amazing. Just the, the imagery and everything else. It's, it's, it's just an amazing fantasy. Performed by South African soul singer Letta Mambulu, a Swahili phrase was added to the introduction and reappears throughout the song. Translated to English, I love you too. I want you too. My love. Liberian Girl would be the ninth and final single from the Bad Album, released commercially in Australia and throughout Europe in July 1989. A review of the Bad Album following a listening party months before its release mentioned a song titled Pyramid Girl. Liberian Girl was first mentioned by Michael in 1983. 
It's been confirmed as having been worked on for Victory, released in 1984. Multiple track sheets dated from 1986 exist under that title. It can be assumed that Pyramid was a Mondegreen, misheard or miswritten. No evidence for such a song titled Pyramid Girl exists. Michael's songs, even uh, if they put on an abstract base, to me were always somehow autobiographical, you know. It always felt that way of knowing him really well and the, the complexities in and out of his life, you know, pro icon, you know. Um, they always felt uh, uh, autobiographical, even if it was something he was resisting, you know, it was, would come out in the song. And I think he's very lucky to have that, to that ability to be such a good songwriter and a singer, too, to get it out, you know. That's cathartic. Dirty Diana. Oh, man, that's, that's, uh, that's like... Uh, up-tempo version with the spirit of Killing Me Softly. It's it's a groupie song, right? You know. Uh, imagery again, you know. It's uh, And I love it that Michael has that uh, uh, that that theatrical tendency. It's just very theatrical, you know, because you saw the video, the girl's leg getting out of the limo and all that stuff. It's, uh, I love that stuff. Cause I, I, I used to get involved in movies. I, I want to do movies all my life, you know. And his stuff was like cinematic, and all the stuff is cinematic, thriller and all of it. And so, In November 1984, Jackson's publishing company, My Jack Music, submitted several cassette tapes to the United States Copyright Office. Among them, cited with 1983 as its creation date, contained an early version of Dirty Diana. Jackson recites a narrative about a groupie seducing him after a concert, away from his lover waiting for him at home. I love Dirty Diana. That's one of my favorites. Why? Because it's a it's a life story of a, a groupie. Um, I hate to say the word groupie, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that I've experienced, and a lot of people grow up on the road. was developed by Jackson by vocally impersonating every instrument. He directed John Barnes to replicate his vision and piece together the complete composition. To bring the song further to its rock result, Paul Jackson Jr. would add electric guitars during the verses and short accents to climax the second and final choruses. Dirty Diana. 
the second of three eventual guitarists on Dirty Diana, David Williams would add the first solo section based on Michael's impersonation on the original demo. When the track got to Westlake for additional production, Steve Stevens, who had been Billy Idol's guitarist and co-writer, was invited to contribute. This included filling the choruses and closing the track with a second guitar solo. The version that I played on was, I think the track was probably about seven minutes long. You know, they explained to me that the, you know, the song was going to be edited down, but they were going to give me this full version to play on. And Michael was really, really very musical. You know, the things that he requested and asked for were all, you know, really cool ideas. He understood what I was about and and was trying to get the best out of my performance. So um, it was, it was a great session. Dirty Diana was arguably a compositional sequel to Beat It from the previous Thriller album. Its mature content reflects his development as a songwriter, edging closer to the autobiographical themes and storytelling. It was released as the fifth single from Bad, with an instrumental version as the B-side. On later pressings of the album, the single edit, tracking 30 seconds shorter, would replace the original. Although Liberian Girl and Dirty Diana were more exploratory in their lyrics and compositions, Michael would continue crafting perfect pop songs. Inspired by a challenge from his mother to write a rhythm and blues song with a shuffle rhythm, Jackson and Barnes developed an instrumental track titled Hot Fever. Eventually, the song was renamed The Way You Make Me Feel. It's unknown to what extent the early instrumental reflects what it became or at what point the lyrics were applied. For unknown reasons, it would retain its working title throughout production. Make me feel. 
killer. The fun part of working with Michael is painting, you know. When you're doing stuff like this, you know, you're painting all the time, you know, to get colors and so forth. Development at Westlake would bring the addition of horns and synthesized orchestration. Swedian emphasized Jackson's imitations of percussion when he recorded vocals. I recorded the drums on a wooden platform, and then we got the idea, why doesn't Michael stand on that when he sings? And he did. It sounds glorious. As Swedian was mixing versions of The Way You Make Me Feel, he decided to mute all the instrumentation. Jackson's vocals, claps, and finger snaps were all that remained. Michael overheard the result, he remarked on how incredible it sounded and instructed Bruce to continue working on it. The prominence of Jackson's footsteps would be lowered, and only a shaker from the instrumental was added. The result would set a standard for many of the singles issued from Bad. They would typically feature a single edit, an extended dance mix, a dub instrumental mix, and an a cappella version which would include all of the vocal parts and some light percussion. The 7-inch version of The Way You Make Me Feel tracks 30 seconds shorter than that on the original album. It reuses lead vocals from the bridge, adding them during the song's fade-out. This would also be implemented on later pressings of the Bad album, although retaining its original runtime. The Way You Make Me Feel would be released as the third single from Bad, peaking at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. February 1988, while rehearsing for the second leg of the Bad Tour, Jackson recorded a new version of the song to serve as an introduction to his Grammy Awards performance that following month. Arranged with the help of Greg Fillengains, 
Michael reuses a melody for the background vocals that was already being performed during the first leg of the tour as an introduction to a different song, This Place Hotel. Although never released, Jackson would reuse this rendition for one-off concerts in 1996 and 2001 and as part of the This Is It rehearsals in 2009. Singer-songwriters Bob Geldof and Midjur drafted a supergroup of musicians. Given the name Band-Aid, the ensemble was compiled of many of the biggest British and Irish musical acts at the time. They recorded Do They Know It's Christmas, released as a charity single to raise money for the Ethiopian famine. Soon after, singer and civil rights leader Harry Belafonte and television producer Ken Cragen had a similar idea. Calling on Quincy Jones for its execution, he contacted Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie to write a song. Quincy Jones called me on the phone. I was in my bedroom in Encino, and he said, Smelly, he calls me Smelly. He said, Smelly, we need a song for the children of the world. There are a lot of children dying, and uh, I want you and Lionel Richie to go in and write a song. So I uh, got together with Lionel, goofed off for two days, doing nothing, just making fun of each other and being silly. We had a pretty good relationship, and we laughed about old times. So we had a lot of catching up to do. So we talked and laughed and threw things at each other and joked around and didn't get anything done. Then on the third day, uh, I think it was the third day, I um, woke up this melody in my head. And I went to the tape recorder and I put it down and it was then I put in that part. When you say that part, the part that... Which is the part that, that, that Lionel brought. Then I added again. Which is the part I added on. After some unproductive sessions with Richie, Michael called upon John Barnes to help put together a demo. Michael came to me one day and said that we need to do this song and uh, I need you to help me do this. So he started singing um, some of the verse. There is a time when we should heed a certain cause Cause the world it seems it's right in this line 
stands a chance for taking in needing our own lives. It seems we need nothing at all. But he primarily focused on the chorus, and I started playing what I felt that the chorus could sound like to what he was singing. And we ran into a studio and we kind of just threw something together really quick. I just put a beat down and played it really, really fast without, you know, a lot of thinking about it. So there would be a reference. Stevie Wonder was originally scheduled to write the bridge with them. He didn't show up. So actually, I kind of did that. And Michael sang it. Jackson presented the demo to Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie. Shortly after, Quincy arranged studio sessions for the pair to record guide vocals with refined lyrics. A demo would be constructed with drummer J.R. Robinson, keyboardist Greg Fillingaines, and bassist Lewis Johnson, all of whom had worked on Jackson's previous two albums and would also feature on Bad. Tapes of the new demo were produced and sent to a roster of singers. This included an enclosed letter from Quincy Jones requesting their participation. On January 28, 1985, following the 12th Annual American Music Awards, 45 of some of the most popular singers in the world would attend A&M Recording Studios in Hollywood. This supergroup of mostly American artists would be referred to as USA for Africa. We Are The World single would sell over 20 million copies. It's one of the biggest selling singles of all time, despite its lukewarm critical reception. There would also be an album featuring an additional nine songs, somewhat random contributions from different artists. Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie would be credited as songwriters. Quincy Jones and Michael O'Martian were credited as producers. This is an injustice to a crucial contributor. I was told at that time by Quincy Jones that I wasn't famous enough for my name to go on it. John Barnes's experience with We Are The World would be a sad early indication of how his work with Michael would be officially recognised. Because of the nature of what it was, you know, a humanitarian project, something that really meant a lot to me in its attempt to help humans, I didn't want to be in a fight over it. But it was very, very hurtful because I wasn't trying to do something. I actually did something. Although he was credited for keyboards and synthesizers on the single, 
His critical role as a composer was not. We Are the World would not have become what it is without him. Michael ended up autographing a 12-inch single of it for me, and it says, to the man who played the song for the very first time. So that's We Are the World. (laughs) Film would be a significant part of the bad era, with almost every song released as a single having a music video to accompany it. Commencing production during the early bad sessions, Captain EO would be a 4D Disney short film epic starring Michael Jackson. The story sees EO commanding a spaceship and crew of creatures on their way to deliver a gift to a foreign planet. Upon their arrival, they're captured and threatened with imprisonment. This forces EO and his team to sing and dance their way out of the situation through two songs. Michael said uh, the the day that he came in the room and he he explained uh, to John and myself what we were going to be undertaking next, which was Captain Neo, and he explained it. And uh, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and the the Disney Imagineering and, you know, Michael's songs. And and he goes, and and you're going to be a big part of it. My head was spinning, but then what we proceeded to do at that point was just have fun in the studio coming up with just ideas. And there were just like several real little quick little idea things that John came up with and then seeing how Michael reacted to a certain kind of a groove or a certain kind of a a sequence of chords. And they were just really rough sketches and ideas. But because John was John, he could lay down a a drum thing. Then he could lay down a couple chords and, and then a bass. And, you know, in, in a short order, uh, you know, we'd have a little section. Maybe, maybe it would only be a, a chorus or a verse of, of an idea for Michael to see what of these ideas did he want to develop. We went into a studio. We were going to work on some pieces of music. During that exact same time, the uh, Pepsi commercial was being shot. And that happened to be the one where... Michael's hair caught on fire. We had the studio booked. We were there every day, but Michael was in the hospital. After a couple of days or so, I just felt that the studio shouldn't be charging and people shouldn't be eating a free lunch, so to speak, with Michael not there and us not doing anything. So I started creating a a piece of music and that piece of music ended up being We Are Here to Change the World. back from the hospital to visit in the studio, he said, you know what? We need to do something very, very different. You know, what can we do? And one of the guys said, well, he's been kind of doing something that's a little different. And he said, let's hear it. And we hit play and he jumped up and started dancing and stuff. And that was that.
We Are Here to Change the World would be first released in 2004 on a compilation box set, The Ultimate Collection, almost 20 years after the premiere of Captain EO. John Barnes would be credited in the liner notes as a co-writer. As the film concludes, a second new song would have its short debut. Originally engineered and mixed by Matt Forger, another part of me was typical of the sound that was being produced at Havenhurst, with a Yamaha DX7 synth bass prominent in the mix and Michael singing about unity, it's characteristic of the song that preceded it. Swedean would remix another part of me at Westlake Studios for considered inclusion on Bad. This made its sonics more harmonious with the other material being refined at the time. That was one of these song ideas that we started with the very kernel of an inspiration. It, it felt great. It just had a great feeling. And uh, John Barnes and Michael and myself started that at Westlake Studio. We were doing the pre-record for the, the actual shooting of the film. We constructed however much of the song was needed at that time. It had this tremendous feeling, and we, we just had this little short portion of it. It just felt so great, and Michael... Uh, wrote the, this great lyric, and it was we, we developed the idea, and then it got set aside. John Barnes and I both went back after Captain EO. We transitioned into the Bad album, and unbeknownst to me, what they did at uh, Westlake Studio, Quincy and Bruce, was this, all of the songs that we did at uh, Havenhurst. We basically fully produced and recorded the songs arrangement-wise and uh, what they basically did at, at Westlake, at least on the songs that originated at Havenhurst, was they re-recorded our demos. Until later that uh, I was told that, no, on another part of me, uh, they took the track that I recorded and John Barnes played on uh, and then that became the track that was on the Bad Album. The only thing they did was they overdubbed uh, Jerry Hay and his horn section, in addition to all of the, our original tracks. Another part of me would be released as the sixth single from the Bad Album. 
As established with the way you make me feel, the single featured the usual handful of variations. The radio edit tracks 30 seconds longer than that on the album, incorporating elongated elements from the extended dance mix. He did say on one level that what we were doing was working on developing the music going forward that he wanted to really be into. But it wasn't specifically like we're working on bad sessions. It was that we had a job. I was under contract with Michael to work every day. That was my my employment. You know, so whatever needed to happen, if I needed to do string orchestrations, I did that. If I needed to um, work with the Synclave and develop music with him, we did that. Whatever needed to be done, that's what I did. And we did that every day. So we were constantly developing music. And he would sit aside the things that he felt a stronger kinship with. And then we began to see that this could possibly be what was going to be on the next project. Another part of me had been done for Captain EO years before as well. And that ended up on bay. The song's placement on the album was ultimately a result of Quincy Jones's advocacy. As Jones and his team were making refinements to Another Part of Me, Michael rented another studio at Westlake with his Havenhurst team to work on his preferred track, Streetwalker. Configuring the final track list for Bad, Michael wanted to include Streetwalker, while Quincy preferenced another part of me. At something of a stalemate, they opted for a third opinion. Michael wanted to do Streetwalker in the album, and I was in the studio that day, and he said to Leo over there, said, Michael wants to, to, us to try to decide now whether we don't have Streetwalker or another part of me. It was so cute, really. It was just, just funny. And Leo had the long cigars. He loved to have the long cigars. And so he's sitting in the chair. And this was the shootout to figure out which one. We're going to listen to them. Three of us, objectively, and listen to decide which one's going to get picked. And so Leo was, he was sitting down with Steve Rocker. was on the up. He got up with his little fat ass, you know. <laughs> I said, you're not helping Michael at all. But that was a... That was a choice of, uh, instead of another part of me. The Leo helped me get the <laughs> other part of me because he started shaking his butt on it. Jackson's manager, Frank DeLeo, chose another part of me. Although an early mock-up of the bad album cover art would include Streetwalker as the opening track. While it wouldn't make the bad album, Michael retained his passion for the song. During the 1988 leg of the Bad World Tour, he requested Bill Bottrell to continue working on Streetwalker. Michael was out on the Bad Tour, and he called me and said, Billy, go work on that Streetwalker. I, so I did. I was alone. I was out in uh, Chatsworth at my studio I liked out there, and reworked that song. And, and then didn't do, did not get that call for quite some time out after that. Well, you know, I can't remember what was what was there, but I thought it wasn't working very well, which is why it didn't make the bad album apparently. And 
somebody somewhere told me I had worked on that version. Maybe I recorded the vocals or something uh, as, you know, because I was around. I don't remember that. I only remember getting the tape and thinking, okay, this doesn't work very well. So I sampled it up a lot. Used horn samples instead of horns. Put guitars on. And uh, maybe it's faster. Maybe it's a bit sped up, too. And there's no decision. It's just like, well, what, what can we do with this? What, what's the song about? You know, what are we trying to do here? Uh, but Michael didn't like it. I, I put that harmonica solo on it. <laughs> Dude, that's country. <laughs> so, shock, you know, how many years later, six years later, it comes out as is on an album, my rough mix. <laughs> like, uh Trell's 1988 mix would find its place as a bonus track on a special edition of Bad released in 2001. This is despite its post-album development and still being incomplete. Streetwalker, much to my horror in, in 2001, uh, I hear online, you know, it's got this long intro with finger snaps and him going... Well, there was supposed to be something on there. <laughs> Just supposed to sit there like that. And nobody thought the cut, at least cut it shorter. He was going to say something. This was me putting things down and making decisions. <laughs> and uh, I was going to get him to say, like, say, say some stuff about this uh, streetwalker, this, this woman. And uh, he never did. And it came out. And there's this long thing. <laughs> It wasn't uncommon for Michael Jackson to revisit themes in his songwriting. Shortly after the release of the Thriller album, Steve Piccaro, who had co-penned the song Human Nature, submitted several demos to Jackson. Among them was one titled Chicago 1945, featuring a narrative about a girl who went missing with mentions of Chicago icons throughout. As with Chicago 1945 and Buffalo Bill, Michael would continue to explore criminological narratives and figures. The next was titled Al Capone. The lyrics, although incomplete, 
detail a vague narrative of a murder that the protagonist is investigating. Al Capone, who was a real-life Chicago gangster during the Prohibition era in the 1920s and 30s, attempts to deter further pursuit of the case. In May of 1985, Jackson wrote a note to an assistant requesting, Please, you must find the guy who played guitar on the record Dance Floor for the band Zap. That guitarist was multi-instrumentalist and founding member of Zap, Roger Troutman. At the behest of Michael, he was invited to Havenhurst to play on several demos being developed at the time. It's unknown what the full extent of Troutman's contributions were, but he is confirmed to have played on two tracks specifically, one titled Tomboy, which is completely unreleased, and the other, Al Capone. None of his contributions were used or have been released. However, Jackson did thank him in the liner notes of the Bad Album, and Troutman returned the acknowledgement on his own Zap 5, released in 1989. It was just seeing what was possible. You know, it's, it's stretching the boundaries. I, it's a tough thing to do, because, uh, you know, when you're working, there's a feeling that I know what I'm doing, I'm a professional, and I know how to do it. But from a scientific standpoint, you want to make sure that you've explored enough to arrive at that decision and to be confident in that decision. And uh, I hadn't worked with anyone that had, who stretched it as far as Michael did when it came to that. Sometimes I thought it got, it, it got pushed a little too far. Other times I felt that it was good that it got pushed far because good things came out of some of the different versions. But God, I remember doing um, Al Capone a couple of times and then Al Capone ended up morphing into what became Smooth Criminal. Smooth Criminal begins with a dramatic opening composed of Michael's breathing in the left channel and a recording of his heartbeat. Both of these were processed by Chris Carell through the synclavia, speeding up until the main composition begins. I was thinking kind of like a kick drum, but using his heartbeat. And he thought that was a really cool idea, so he uh, got this specialist from San Francisco with all the gear and everything, flew him down to the studio in LA with all his gear, and recorded it into the synclavia. But as it turned out, the recording was not what I expected it to be. It really was kind of a slush slush sound. <laughs> but anyway, I mixed in another sound. It was either with another recording of a heartbeat or it was with a kick drum, but it was very specific to match that slush slush sound so it became a composite. Then I put it together as a sequence and then that was used. Although completely rewritten, the lyrics retain the general narrative from its predecessor. It details a woman's murder, but substitutes the repetition of questioning a suspect with an attempted resuscitation. Having recently received cardiopulmonary resuscitation lessons, 
Jackson used the name of the dummy practiced on by trainees. Before administering CPR, one must assess the necessity of the procedure by attempting to verbally communicate with the individual. During the Westlake sessions, Jackson was also filming the movie Moonwalker. The main storyline was built around what would become the music video for Smooth Criminal, although deters from the song's narrative. During production, the song was remixed with extended instrumental sections to accommodate the developing choreography. The version in the film also contains a complete second verse, later shortened on the album and single releases. on the second leg of the Bad World Tour, Michael called Chris Carell and requested that Smooth Criminal be re-recorded. This was five months after the album was released. After Carell travelled to the Hit Factory studio in New York, he was greeted by Bruce Swedean who said, I have already recorded this twice. I don't know what Michael wants to hear. You mix it. Chris re-recorded some Synclavia parts and made minor adjustments to the mix. For the most part, it's barely distinguishable from Swedean's original album version. Michael was pleased with the result, adding it to future pressings of the bad album. Soon after, a third version would be created, retaining Carell's mix, but removing Jackson's breathing in the song's introduction. So I, I wrote called uh, Smooth Criminal. I use um, siren, you know, machine gun sounds about Chicago in 1940. So it was appropriate. Smooth Criminal would be issued as the seventh single from Bad shortly after the release of Moonwalker. It would contain the usual handful of remixes with some additions. The single mix resembles the clearer rhythm section of the version featured in the film. Every time I do an album, I write almost nearly a hundred or over a hundred songs. So we have to cipher them down and Smooth Criminal almost did not make it on the album. I gotta be honest, and I was never a big fan of that song. You know, Michael loved it to pieces, man. He played it. I remember we went to, to do the video on that. I never heard, there must have been 135 decibels. Loud, man, I mean, ears were falling out. Like the rest of the album, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson are credited as the producers for Smooth Criminal. 
Compared to any potential contribution Jones could have made, this is the early version of what was produced at Havenhurst. The demo features Bill Bottrell on drums, which would be lifted for the album and film versions, and John Barnes playing everything else. scratch vocal, while still impressive, is incomplete, just providing a blueprint for what would become one of his most recognisable songs. session demos produced by John Barnes, Bill Bottrell and Matt Forger are barely distinct from the Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson produced final versions. And Smooth Criminal is just one of eight examples. Uh, I think the most amazing progressive thing on there is Smooth Criminal. And certainly John Barnes and I worked endlessly on trying to fit those sounds together and with the vocals and so i guess i'm proud of that moonwalker would feature a compilation of music videos before its main narrative Perhaps the most memorable, with its extensive use of claymation, would be the song Leave Me Alone. The song's message is often misconstrued as a retaliation to the negative press that circulated about Jackson. This is fueled by the content of the music video. It features floating newspapers with scandalous headlines and Michael dancing with the skeleton of the elephant man, a reference to the rumours of him wanting to buy his bones. The lyrics are actually about walking away from a girlfriend, taunting and critiquing her as he leaves. creation you create what's inside of you subconsciously what influences you i'm a fantasy fanatic anything that takes you off into another world escapism that's what i like i'm not so crazy about the reality of everything i like a lot of fantasy and that's what i try to create to get away to become moved this was another one of the earliest tracks worked on at havenhurst primarily with Matt Forger and John Barnes. 
Jackson would later recount working hard on the song, describing his performance as like stacking vocals on top of each other, like layers of clouds. as the final song on the Bad Album, although it was only released on the CD. A format that many music consumers were still transitioning to at the time. It would be released as the album's seventh single in February 1989, accompanied by tracks from Off The Wall and Thriller as B-sides. This is despite Bruce Wadian having mixed the usual handful of variations just a month before the single was issued. These remixes remain unreleased, although have leaked online, sourced from a vinyl acetate. Michael wanted the Bad Album to be yet bigger than Thriller, better, just more newer and fresher, give people something that they'd never heard before. That was always the search, forever, in the studio with Michael. He always wanted something new. That's why we did a lot of experimenting with instruments and sound qualities and sampling and and all kinds of things. Uh, Michael was for always wanting to explore new areas sonically, uh, in terms of songwriting and, and arrangement. I mean, that was such an exciting time to be part of it. Described by Jackson as a machine song, Speed Demon would be another track to utilize claymation in its music video featured in Moonwalker. Supposedly inspired after Michael received a speeding ticket, the lyrics and sound effects express the mentality of a motorhead's unremitting acceleration. I'm headed for the border. It's so my mind. And nothing really matters. I got to be your time. Look in the view mirror. Is it hot on my tracks? Is it getting nearer? I put some heaties on my back. Oh, I'm speaking. Speak, don't do it. Gotta get living. Speaking. Don't know how it got to have it my way. Speaking. Mind is like a compass. I'm stopping and nothing. Speaking. Pull over for it and get your ticket right. 
On the day Quincy's team were set to work on the track, engineer Bruce Wadian had also received a speeding ticket on his way to Westlake Studios. isn't much of a deviation from the Havenhurst demo. Although refinements were made to the lyrics, the verses are mostly the same in their delivery. would be retained in its final version. The most significant difference is the lack of bass and snare during the chorus. The demo ends with Jackson impersonating a string section, which was replaced with synthesizers later in production. He also performed some vocal ad-libs with a megaphone or radio effect on his voice. were lifted from the initial tracking, including Bill Betrell and David Williams' guitar licks, the Westlake sessions would see the significant addition of Jerry Hayes' horn arrangements. The Speed Demon is uh, amazing, uh I mean, Michael's imagination is awesome. You know, really is. He, he's very unique, man. Through with him all with Michael. He, he, he thinks, he, he stays out of the box, and I love that. And uh, we had a, Jerry Hay wrote a real great double line, bass line in there that, that I like too, that was, he helped the tune a lot, you know. Speed Demon would be issued as a promotional single in September 1989, exclusively in France. This was two months after the Bad Album's final commercial single, Liberian Girl. Despite its minimal release, Michael may have had bigger plans for the song. In April 1988, Billboard magazine reported that Omar Santana, a house and techno music producer, had been commissioned to remix Speed Demon. Apparently, Quincy enjoyed the result, while Michael did not. Soon after, electro-funk music producer Man Parish 
was DJing at Studio 54 when Jackson walked up to his booth and personally asked him to remix Speed Demon. The reception to that mix would meet a similar fate. In 2012, the Michael Jackson estate approached various producers to remix Speed Demon for a 25th anniversary release of Bad. They allowed only a week for production and it had to be remixed at Westlake. Several remixes, including Louis LaRoche and Soul Wax, turned down the proposition. Electronic music trio Nero were able to take up the offer under the stringent conditions. Both Omar Santana and Man Parish's remixes remain unreleased. I mean, I think melodies are always important. I mean, especially like some of the the old Beatle things. I mean, I think the melodies are beautiful. That's what I think make them stay around so long. Yeah, that's why I like melodies too. Really? Uh, the thing that put me off a lot of pop music is the way it's, uh, you know, you can't distinguish what the tune's right. supposed to be. In August 1985, Michael Jackson successfully bid on the ATV Music Publishing catalogue. It included almost 4,000 songs, 251 of which were by the Beatles. John Barnes had been Michael's primary collaborator during this period. Bill Bottrell, though, would have a significant musical influence, despite initially being brought in as an engineer. October 26, 86, come together. Somewhere in the previous weeks before that, uh, Michael had been staying at an apartment in Westwood. And so I was driving him home after the session every day. And he really wanted to do a Beatles song. So we were playing Beatles tapes. He really liked that song, You Know My Name. And, and I think I regret it to this day, but I said, I don't know, Michael, how about uh, just to come together or something? Come together over me. He used to go away for two weeks at a time during these sessions and still have me sitting in there wondering what to do. I started putting down come together using whatever I could throw onto the tape. I rented a guitar to play because I didn't have one and um, got Lewis Johnson in to play bass and, you know, did a nice mix of it and that, that was the end of it. <laughs> Always assumed this thing is not done. <laughs> this could not be done. Although it wouldn't make the bad album, Come Together would be included in Moonwalker. Its feature would be delivered as a live performance, concluding the film. 
song would eventually see a commercial release four years later as a B-side on the Remember the Time single from the follow-up album Dangerous. It would be re-released in 1995 on Jackson's album History, Past, Present and Future Book One, this time as an edited version cutting almost a minute and a half. Aside from the addition of the audience noise in Moonwalker, all versions of the song are derived from Betrayal's original mix. It's estimated that Michael and his team worked on over 60 songs at Havenhurst. Of those, he presented around 30 to Quincy Jones for additional work. Through leaks and various releases, the fraction of publicly accessible outtakes show that Jackson's songwriting was tackling more socially conscious issues, although their representation on the album would lack. Do You Know Where Your Children Are is a prime example. Providing a synopsis of its content, Michael had written on a note at the time, the song is about kids being raised in a broken family, where the father comes home drunk and the mother is out prostituting and the kids run away from home. It's about the runaway problem we have in America, they become victims of prostitution. strong feelings about but then again that's where the philosophical and artistic differences showed up between him and Quincy Jones. There was one called Do You Know Where Your Children Are that was very interesting. You know and there were a lot of others. It's a tough thing especially at that time because you're dealing with the early days of CD but still a form of vinyl. You know, and there were limits as to how much music could go on these projects. While Bill Betrell and Matt Forger would share engineering duties, John Barnes would again bring the track to fruition, playing synths and programming the drums. The only other appearance on the track would be David Williams, providing the guitar solo as dictated by Michael.
Digital References, a public service announcement that was broadcast on American television from the 1960s to the late 80s. Typically preceding a late-night newscast, a message sometimes delivered by a celebrity would ask, It's 10pm. Do you know where your children are? It was intended as a reminder for parents to check up on their kids, reducing youth crime and adhering to curfews. That diversity was probably part of of why he wanted to do these experiments early before he went into the studio with Q. Because that's a very structured environment. It's hard to be capricious, and Michael wanted to be that way uh, for at this time. There was a new song every five, six days. Some of them never went anywhere. Some of them did, and they didn't have a lot of relation to each other. Do You Know Where Your Children Are wouldn't make bad and only briefly considered for Jackson's successive two albums. In 2010, the song would leak onto the internet having been considered for the first posthumous album titled Michael. This is presumed to have been remixed by John McClain. It utilises a rhythm sample from Melvin Bliss's synthetic substitution and features a guitar solo from Steve Lukather. a release on a second posthumous album titled Escape in a remix produced by Timberland. Greg Fillingaines had worked with Michael Jackson for almost a decade. He was crucial in the production and arrangement of the Jacksons' Shake Your Body Down to the Ground and Michael's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. He's played piano and keyboards on all of his solo albums as an adult artist. Although generally regarded as part of Quincy's team, he did briefly join Jackson at Havenhurst, co-writing a highly regarded outtake. Cheater. Heard that one... I co-wrote that one. Was it released? Never released. Michael conceptualizes rhythms, you know, vocally. He can emulate different percussive sounds, you know. A lot of times they're, they're used as part of the foundation of uh, the song. So he's just heavily uh, percussion-oriented. You know my work, The song is another narrative. 
Michael describes the perils of gambling, becoming beholden to your debtors and holding out hope for a big win. One could interpret the lyrics as analogous to a relationship. Although officially labelled as a demo, Cheetah sounds as complete as any other song released on Bad. Its production arguably wouldn't have been out of place had it made the track list. the sound he wanted, the, th- the sound he had in his mind at the time, uh, whatever it was, especially when it came to uh, those percussive guitar parts. And uh, he found a guy, David Williams, who was brilliant at that, and he was able to completely and accurately reproduce exactly the, the vibe and attitude Michael wanted for those kind of parts. parts of his songs like characters. Every every sound was a character. He couldn't play every instrument. Uh, he dabbled in piano and he could play drums. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense because he was a dancer. He, he was able to totally uh, reproduce the sound he wanted, the, th- the sound he had in his mind at the time. obvious hit potential, Cheetah did not have a release during the bad era. The song would later be reworked during the sessions for Jackson's last album, Invincible, released in 2001. The extent of its alterations by producer Rodney Darkchild Jerkins are unknown. Cheetah wouldn't make the final configuration of that album either. It is believed that a rap section was added due to a writing credit attributed to a rapper known as Fats, who had appeared on other songs on the album. The original 1986 demo would finally see a release on the 2004 compilation box set, The Ultimate Collection. Mistakenly, the liner notes attribute it as having been recorded in 1987, where it was more likely the year before. An edited version would also be issued to radio stations before the box set's release. A music video was also created, containing a montage of live performance clips. Following Jackson's passing in 2009, a photo from the year before emerged as part of a police investigation. It showed a list of unreleased or incomplete songs that are assumed Michael had intended to work on. Cheetah was one of them. Cheetah. 
many times to me, if he heard something in his head, the point that I would come in would be uh, when he had a semblance of a melody that he would start singing and then I would start harmonizing that melody immediately. And then once we had a solid piece of music like that, then I would take that and go in the other room and start organizing it into a real recording, something we could record that he could then sing to and we could then move forward with. Sometimes he'd have a baseline idea or he sang some of his vocal drum parts to give an idea of the energy that he wanted in it. Sometimes it would go like that. Or he'd say something like, you know, this feel like this. I want to write something with that kind of feel. Which at that point, I'd start looking through what we had and see if there was a way that I could start a process of creating that kind of a feel. That then would maybe inspire him to go and come back with something with it. Price of Fame became a Pepsi commercial at one point. As with Do You Know Where Your Children Are, Michael dramatically noted the inspiration for the song. He explained, The girls who are over-obsessed with me, who follow me, who almost make me want to kill myself in my car, who just give their lives to do anything with me, to see me, they'll do anything, and it breaks my heart. It's breaking up my relationship with my girl, with my family. That's the price of fame. serious nature and not making the final configuration for bad, Michael would record an additional version. The lyrics were adapted, intended as the soundtrack for a series of advertisements for Pepsi, titled The Magic Begins and The Chase.
Price of Fame wouldn't be released until 2012 as part of a 25th anniversary release of Bad. The Pepsi version would also be discarded, replaced with a tailored version of a song that was released. I do believe deeply in perfection, and I just, I'm never satisfied. I always, I'll cut a track or something, and I come home and I say, no, that's not right, we gotta do it over, that's not right, and you just go back and back and back, and then it's finally out. You say, darn it, I should have done this, I should have did it. It's number one on the chart, you're still screaming about what you should have done. I'm still not satisfied with a lot of things, but that's, that's really good, yeah, you know. To keep growing and perfecting like that, I, I like to stay that way because if you you just satisfy with everything, uh, you're just gonna stay at one level and the world will move ahead. <laughs> That's not good either. While on the victory tour with his brothers in 1984, Michael visited an antique shop in Atlanta. He was greeted by the owner, confusingly exclaiming, "You are bad! You are bad!" while chasing him out of the store. Who's bad? That interaction may have served as the inspiration for what would become the title track for Jackson's next solo album. Initially given the working title P, what became bad was written by Michael, supposedly on instruction from Quincy Jones. Quincy intended the song as a duet with the musician Prince. Bad was conceived. I wanted to do a duet with Prince. It would have been great, man. It really would have, you know. Just it just the drama, man. You know how the fighters do it, you know. And have the video with him coming to kick Michael's ass and oh, your butt is mine, you know. I mean, that's what it was written for, you know, to do that. I uh, set up a meeting with Prince and Michael, which was the historical night. And Prince finally said, you don't need me to be honest, you know, maybe you get without me, you know. There was never, like, any rivalry between you and Mr. Jackson? Oh, not to me, no. That's the story of you turning down bad. Well, <laughs> the first line of that song was, your buddy's mine. Now, I said, who gonna sing that to whom? Because you sure ain't singing it to me. And I sure ain't singing it to you. So, right there we got, you know, right there we got a problem. Some associates, including Jones, have said that Prince recorded his own version of the song and sent it back to Michael. Such a version has never leaked, and its existence is questionable. Instead, Prince sent a song that he had written titled Wouldn't You Love to Love Me for Michael to record. Neither proposition would be accepted.
with Smooth Criminal, Bad would be modified as the music video was filmed. This was informed by the song's bombastic introduction, which Chris Carell was tasked to construct. We came back with the footage, and Bad was pretty much just me and Michael in the studio recording that. So Jerry Hay did the horns during the song, but then they realized that there was no intro. And so this is, you know, Chris, you know, do something. So what I did is I just used the Synclav here and sampled individual horn parts from what was on the song in other parts and then completely reconstructed a whole horn section there into that hit, you know, bomb, 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 and they loved that. So, and I did that at my house, not at Michael's studio. I did it at my studio on my Synclavier. So it worked perfectly. That would also feature a guest appearance with jazz musician Jimmy Smith at the behest of Quincy Jones. Playing his signature Hammond B3 organ, modded for MIDI recording, his solo lasts just 12 seconds, having been spliced together from over 20 minutes of material. The music video mix utilizes different segments of Smith's performance. commercials, Bad would replace Price of Fame as the soundtrack. The lyrics were rewritten and set to the original instrumental. would be released as the second single just a week after the album. It would be the first to feature Swidian's handful of remixes. The extended dance mix contains vocals not used on the album versions, but did feature in the end credits of the 18-minute short film. As with Dirty Diana and The Way You Make Me Feel, later pressings of the album would replace with the 7-inch single mix. This version subtracts the horns played during the pre-chorus. It is quite different from anything I've ever recorded or I've ever written. Uh, it's a bold statement to say. Yeah, I'm saying I'm 
It's like a way of saying you're cool, you're you're uh, you're all right, you're, you're tough. I'm not saying I'm like criminally bad. Of course, that's how people would take it. Um, it's a it's a bold statement to make. Duets having been a feature on the previous albums, Bad would contain two. The first was initiated by an untimely burst of inspiration, with John Barnes and Bill Bottrell tracking the demo for "I Just Can't Stop Loving You" with Michael at Havenhurst. "I Just Can't Stop Loving You" started at 3 a.m. That's one of those you get the phone call to wake up and we need to record right now, and we were done probably an hour and a half. Each time the wind blows, I hear your voice, so I call your name. Whispers and morning, our love is dawning. Heaven's glad you came. You know how I feel, this thing can go wrong. I'm so proud to say I love you. Just can't hold on. This feeling so strong. My life ain't worth living if I can't be with you. I just can't stop loving you. I just can't stop loving you. And if I stop, then tell me just what will I do? I just can't stop loving you. Although removed from later pressings, the first album mix features Jackson tenderly whispering a declaration of love. It was recorded with Michael laying next to a mannequin head, fitted with binaural recording equipment known as holophonics. I just want to lay next to you for a while. You look so beautiful tonight. Your eyes are so lovely. Your mouth is so sweet. A lot of people misunderstand me. That's because they don't know me at all. I just want to touch you and hold you. I need you. God, I need you. I love you so much. Jackson and Quincy had considered artists like Whitney Houston and Barbara Streisand to feature as duet partners. Both declined the offer, and the position would be taken up by Saida Garrett, who was working on another track at Westlake for the album at the time. Quincy just sort of over his shoulder said, "Hey Sid, you you like this song? Yeah, I like I like it." He said, "Do you think you can sing it?" Yeah. So I walked in this room and I see these two mic stands, and there's music sheets where it said. Michael Saida, Michael Saida. That was the moment that I realized, oh my God, I'm doing a duet with Michael Jackson. I hear your voice now. You are my choice now. The love you bring. Heaven's in my heart. At your call, I hear hearts and angels sing. You know how I 
just can't stop loving you would also be recorded by Jackson and Garrett in Spanish. The lyrics were rewritten by Panamanian musician Ruben Blades. The one thing I didn't I didn't think was possible was just to do a, tra- a translation of the song. So what I said was let me understand the song and I'll be as close as I can to what the song was about. He made slight alterations to the lyrics for a more optimal translation. Todo mi hora es tu would be released as a promotional single in Spanish-speaking markets. I just can't stop loving you. Uh, it's very powerful stuff. Uh, Michael understands drama. You know, he really does. Uh, the Spanish version, of course I remember cutting it. I was living with a girl who wrote it. <laughs> well, we're here today uh, try to uh, finish up a session with Michael Jackson singing in Spanish and in French. We've spoken about this years for years and years, but uh, we never got around to it because by the time we finished the album, we do disco versions and we do videos, etc., and I think inside we weren't really sure whether we could make it work. Je ne veux pas la fin de nous, a French interpretation by Christine de Croix, would remain unreleased at the time. I Just Can't Stop Loving You was released on July 20th, 1987. It was the first solo single from Michael Jackson in over three years. The song would reach number one on several charts around the world, although only retaining its placement briefly. As production moved from Michael's team at Havenhurst to Quincy's at Westlake Studios, tensions began to arise between the two camps. The Havenhurst demos had been developed and mixed on the Synclavia, which Jackson was enamoured by due to its sound quality. As the multi-tracks were transferred to tape for work at Westlake, he felt the punch in the sound was lost in the process. Michael requested that Betrell and Barnes re-record the multi-tracks on his tape machine, attempting to accommodate for the missing fidelity. This, coupled with lacking communication, was allegedly taken as an affront to Quincy Jones and engineer Bruce Wadian. Quincy gave Michael an ultimatum. If Betrell and Barnes weren't dismissed from the project, he and Swadian would exit. With Jones contracted as the producer of one more album, Jackson was forced to cease John and Bill's involvement. Well, at the end of the bad sessions in 86, um, Quincy said, 
okay, can he be done now, please? <laughs> Meaning me. And uh, it was cool. Uh, I don't know what role I could play. I had I had made nice rough mixes of all the songs, the the ones that had any kind of finish to them. And Michael said, um, "Don't worry, you'll be back on the next one as producer." And I went about my business and did other projects. John would be given some instrumental and arrangement credits. Bill would also be co-credited for drums on Smooth Criminal and guitar on Speed Demon. Their appearance in the album's liner notes is a massive understatement of their contributions. I would get with Michael. We would look at what we were going to do or what we wanted to accomplish. If he didn't have anything that he was wanting to accomplish at that time or if he wasn't going to be around for a few days or whatever that was, then I would plan an agenda. We would either go out and do field recordings or I would start working on taking what we had done and figuring out ways to combine that with other instrument sounds and create things. Then if I was so inspired, I'd maybe create a piece of music. And so it kind of was like a a relay race and that that part of it would go into action Then we'd have a piece of music. Then that would go over to Bill and Bill would send it back and we'd hear what he did. And then that would become exciting. And then that would trigger more energy. And we just kind of became um, inspirations to one another by bringing our gifts to the, to bear. And that they were really that straightforward and simple. Three guys in a, in a small studio, just doing that, not making it a big deal. It wasn't videotaping every day. It wasn't having lots of people in and out. It was very focused and, you know, streamlined. So that's what we did. It's very difficult to take a situation like that and be viewed as, like a warm-up squad or a B-team and all those kinds of things. John Barnes and Bill Bottrell are the uncredited producers of Michael Jackson's Bad. They laid the foundation and they set the axioms for what the album became. They weren't the B-team. They were the architects. Not all of the songs on Bad were penned by Michael. Just Good Friends would be the second duet produced for the album, featuring Stevie Wonder. and Graham Lyle, the pair best known for What's Love Got To Do With It by Tina Turner. Britton had also previously written a song titled She's Trouble, which Michael recorded for the Thriller album, although it did not make the track list. I tried to hide this affair. 
The song is widely regarded as a low point on the album. The expectations of two former Motown musical geniuses fell remarkably short. With Michael having worked on plentiful songs during this era, and Stevie Wonder having a notoriously large vault of unreleased material, the result of their collaboration is bewildering. Having initiated the project, Quincy Jones has since conceded the collaboration was a mistake. That one. We can get the right song. I, I know I, I know I didn't have the right song, so somebody said that didn't work. I know it didn't work. We got a problem here. I can see the sign. I guess the lady is still making up her mind. Say oh, baby, love me, though she never shows she cares. No, you won't see her kissing her. Just Good Friends would be the only song on Bad not to be issued as a promotional or commercial single. Shortly after Bad was released, Stevie Wonder was playing a series of concerts in London. He was also completing his next album titled Characters. Miss Lady Stevie gave an unusual request and opportunity to one of his audience members. He asked Barry Betts to undergo an all-expenses-paid trip to Los Angeles to deliver a tape to Quincy Jones. That tape contained an early version of the song Get It, intended as a duet with Michael. Jackson was about to fly to Japan to perform, commencing his Bad World tour, the delivery was rerouted. The tape would eventually be handed to Bruce Swedean at the Los Angeles International Airport. Swedean was waiting for his plane to Tokyo, as many of the Westlake team were invited to attend the concerts. Michael would record his vocals while in Tokyo before sending the multi-track tape back to Stevie Wonder's team. The song was not a success, although was released as a single. I had on my 
album that I wanted him to do, my character's album, which was Get It, Gotta Get It. So we sort of, you know, both did each other a favor, a favor, a favor, a favor. But I made sure the song he did of mine, I wrote. <laughs> yeah. As Bad was nearing completion, Michael and Quincy felt the album needed a track with the intent of spreading positivity. Michael had written 33 songs, and they were saying, look, it's showdown time, we got to pick it, you know, so... I remember t- making a selection, and I put my, my choices over here, and I put uh, the, the demo to uh, Man in the Mirror right there, because so, that's Michael had to make up his mind whether he wanted to do that or not. And so Michael pushed it over in that pile, you know. So this is time to take it home and deliver. No more messing around, you know. Worldly, anthemic, and idealistic songs would become prominent features in Jackson's albums. Although typically written by himself, for this album, Jones appealed to the songwriters signed to his label. This is how Saida Garrett, who was also working on her album at the time, was introduced to the project. Man in the Mirror, we kept talking about an anthem, just generally, not who was going to write it, Michael or anybody else, how nice it would be is to get an anthem that had a, had a, a, a good feel to it, you know, just like some sunshine on the world. I had a big, huge publishing company then, that 13 writers, you know. And uh, they came to the house just to say, help, guys, you know, come up, see if you can come up with a, a idea for the anthem. He said he wanted something upbeat. He said he wanted something that felt good. Went to Glenn Ballard's house, who was my writing partner at the time. I said, this is what Quincy wants. He said, oh, well, let's just see what we come up with. He stands up, goes over to the keyboards, turns on the keyboard, and starts playing... So I'm flipping through my lyric book, and the phrase, man in the mirror, just popped out at me. And I started writing these lyrics that I couldn't, I couldn't get it all out fast enough. And in like 15 minutes, we had the first verse and the chorus. I'm certain there will be a change. And starting with that man in the mirror, I mean, it, the, the lyrics evolved into what they are, but these are, these are the humble beginnings. Gonna make a change for once in my She came in the house, she was like a Mona Lisa. She had a very sacred, and I could see that divine 
feeling in her eyes. And she said, I got it, I got it. Uh, and she had been working uh, very successfully with, with Glenn Ballard, who I just adore. You know, and her and Glenn had worked on some other stuff, and they were quitting. And just before they went home, they sat down and wrote this in two hours. Show. And Quincy goes, Sid, this is the best song that I've heard in 10 years. Saida's lyrics are essentially complete and her background vocals are carefully placed, as they would be in Michael's version. Glenn's instrumental is a specific blueprint, from its heavy kick drum to the additions of finger snaps during the first chorus and building up the loud reverberated snare from the second verse. The key was one step too high for Michael. So Quincy wanted me to re-sing the demo in the new key. So I come in here and I'm singing the demo in the new key, and Michael is filming me. Whenever you're ready, Miss Saida. Gonna make a change for once in my life. Gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right And as I turned up the collar board My favorite winter cold This wind is blowing my mind I see the kids in the street They're not enough to eat Who am I to be blind Pretending not to see them my philosophy too if you want to make the world a better place take a look at yourself and then make a change is it hard to do yeah well people don't look at themselves honestly they don't look at themselves and point the finger at them it's always the other guy's fault or somebody else you should change yourself Um, look at yourself make better of yourself following the demo's composition with all its affectations some additions would be made From the second verse, Jerry Hay added a horn arrangement that would ultimately be removed from the final mix. This can be heard in the This Is It film and on the Cirque du Soleil Immortal soundtrack. To put
putting together the basic tracking for Man in the Mirror, Quincy called in gospel singer and producer Andre Crouch. Upon hearing the early version of the track, he conducted his choir to add their chorus, further accentuating the gospel nature of the song. song on the album with its inception and full development being a result of Quincy Jones as a producer. It's one of Jackson's favourite songs and would become a staple of his live performances. It's been almost four years since you recorded or come out with a new album. How do you feel now that the album is out? Um, I feel rejuvenated, kind of, because after working on it so long, it's so much work. A lot of people, they're used to um, just seeing the outcome of work. They never see the side of the work you go through to produce the outcome. And uh, I feel, you know, rejuvenated and happy. It's, it's a jubilation, really, is what it is. It's like a celebration. It's like, we're done. Michael Jackson's Bad Album was released on August 31st, 1987. It would debut at number one on numerous charts, attaining that position in 25 countries. It sold 7 million copies within a week, and 18 million within a year. By 1991, it was certified as the second best-selling album of all time behind Thriller. Of the nine singles generated, six would reach number one on charts around the world. As Bad has been reappraised, it's often contextualized as the last album in the Michael Jackson-Quincy Jones partnership. While the credits reflect this assessment, in reality, Bad is the first album in which Michael Jackson took control. This doesn't make Quincy irrelevant to its production, just less relevant. 
the credit he received should have been attributed to others. Bill Bottrell would be one of the producers on Jackson's next album, Dangerous, released in 1991. He was responsible for the productions of Black or White, Give In To Me, and what would eventually become Earth Song on the History album in 1995. John Barnes would not take part in Michael's future albums. However, in 2004, he was invited to Jackson's home, Neverland Ranch, to work on a song. I Have This Dream, co-written with David Foster, was intended as a charity single featuring a roster of current artists as vocalists, much like We Are The World. Perhaps something of an acknowledgement of how important Barnes was to its making. In 2005, the production of I Have This Dream moved with Michael to Bahrain as he signed a deal with Two Seas Records. Shortly after, Bill Bottrell was also called in to contribute. He wrote six songs while waiting for Michael, who never showed up. I Have This Dream remains unreleased. Baby, don't make me. 